At last, a preacher guaranteed to please all has been found. He preaches exactly 25 minutes against sin in such a gentle way he never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. in every kind of work possible. He can clean the church if necessary. He helps overhaul the autos of the congregation and is an expert in almost every field. He always dresses in the best clothes, buys the latest books on every subject, has a well-dressed wife and well-behaved children, drives a late model car at all times, gives to every charitable fund, and gives $40 to the church from his $100 a week salary. He's 20 years old and has been preaching for 30 years. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all his time with the older folk. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a good sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He has a glowing personality with deadened feelings and iron nerves. This is taken from the Arkansas Baptist. And as I read that, I thought, to be married to a man like that, uh, a man with those traits and qualities, takes an unusual woman. And so that's why we're having this workshop. That's why there's a need for a workshop like this. Help, I'm a pastor's wife. Is this humming? And he's gone. Well, maybe it'll quit. People watch everything I do. They criticize every move I make. If only I could be myself. They don't like my husband's preaching. My kids can't do anything right. We have no time together as a family. I can't get anything done because there's always someone at the door or on the telephone. I'm expected to be at the church every time the doors are open. No matter what I wear, someone thinks it's too stylish or too out of style. I have no close friends and no one to confide in. Our financial picture is bleak, and we can just barely make ends meet. I hate this parsonage. The church won't even let us choose our own paint and wallpaper. And why do people think a pastor's wife has to be able to do everything? Do I have to be a gifted speaker and a concert pianist and a trained counselor and a flawless organizer and a, a gourmet cook and an immaculate housekeeper? Help. I'm a pastor's wife. If you are a pastor's wife, and I assume that all of you are, do we have anyone in here who isn't? who just happened to come in to, to listen good. That's just fine. You're very welcome. But most of you are pastor's wives. And as we all know, a pastor's wife has her work cut out for her. And no one could honestly say that her role in life is an easy one. If any of you take Christianity today, 
or some of your husbands do. I don't know if you've seen the current issue. It says, uh, clergy divorces spill over into the congregation, and it shows a stream of blood flowing down from the pulpit into the, the aisles of the congregation. And when you read a title like that, clergy divorces spill over into the congregation, what is that telling us? It's telling us that there are problems in the homes of the clergy. If there were not problems, there would be no divorces. And there are divorces because there are pastor's wives who are having problems, and there are pastors who are having problems. And not one of us would say that a pastor's wife has an easy role. But she is a very privileged person. And at the outset, we do want to establish the fact that she um, has a very enviable, an enviable position. I thought what we would do this morning, in the little bit of time that we have, this seems so short to me. I just have so many things I want to say. And I wanted to hear you say so many things. But um, I want us to first take just a quick look at the privileges a pastor's wife does have. I want to start with the positive. And then I want us to look at the problems that she really does face and the things she really does have to cope with. I want to look at both of these things. I want to give you this, this list and this uh, section on her privileges because every now and again it's good for a pastor's wife to sit and realize the, the kind of a privilege she really has. And there are many, many times when she doesn't think so. There are many times when she would think that this list was just a farce and that there was nothing on this list that would ever relate to her. But I find these things, I find these as privileges for the pastor's wife. And I want to share these with you very quickly. The first privilege is the opportunity of working side by side with her husband. The opportunity of working side by side with her husband. Very few occupations make it possible for a husband and wife to share so closely in a husband's daily work. And isn't that true? In fact, I hardly know of any. There are some. Grocers, uh, someone might own a little grocery store and the husband and wife could work together in that. But you just go down the list of occupations and there aren't all that many where a husband and wife can work so closely together and be so interwoven uh, in their work. And, and this is a privilege. A pastor and his wife are a team. They are co-shepherds, if you will. And this affords a lot of togetherness. Just think with me of all the things you do as a pastor's wife. Funerals, weddings, house calls, hospital visits, social functions in the church, and in the homes of the congregation. Think of all the times you are together. And as I look back over our ministry as a pastor and his wife, many of our most special times have been on the way to a funeral or on the way home from a funeral or at a wedding rehearsal or on our way to and from a wedding rehearsal or whatever. These are very special times. And all these church-related activities provide opportunities for the pastor and his wife to be together. We have had uh, different roles. I don't have time to give you our life story. It's too long. But 
we've been in and out of the pastorate, not because we don't love it, but because of my husband having two loves. <laughs> he loves the pastorate and he loves teaching. So we've gone back and forth between the two, and we've been in the pastorate, out of the pastorate. We've had combinations of full-time pastorate, part-time seminary teaching, full-time seminary teaching, and part-time pastoring, and we've tried all of the combinations. And when we get so tired, then we have to make a switch and say, okay, for now we're just going to do one or the other. And let me tell you this, that I really miss it when my husband is not in the pastorate and when he's just teaching at the seminary. There's not nearly the opportunity to be together that we have when he's in the pastorate. And this is one of the, the special privileges. The second one is this. The built-in opportunity, the built-in opportunity for input into people's lives. The built-in opportunity for input into people's lives. The pastor and his wife actually have the problem of cutting off opportunities for service rather than having to create them. That's just built into being a pastor and his wife. There are opportunities everywhere for you to serve and to minister. People have needs. People have needs constantly. And more often than not, they first look to their pastor when they have a need. And that's a built-in opportunity. Being in the pastorate is being on the front battle line of the spiritual warfare. If you want to be where things are really happening and where people are really struggling and where the spiritual battles are going on, you get into the pastorate and you see them. This is where you meet people in their crises in life and in their problems. And the pastor and his wife are in the thick of the battle. A third privilege. A third privilege, and this one I think is so very special. The strong bond of love that develops between the pastor and his wife and the individual members of the congregation. That strong bond of love, which once it is formed, never breaks. You do not marry, bury, baptize, console, comfort, and counsel people without those times of interaction producing a strong and permanent bond between the parties involved. Those of you who are pastors' wives, you look back over your pastorates and, and you think of those friendships and those bonds of love that you formed and that are still there. As I think back over our lives, some of our closest friends in life are still uh, people back in our early days of pastoring, some of our dearest friends. And when you go from one pastor to another, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get to thinking about certain people in a congregation where we once were, and I get homesick for those people. I just get so I think, I've got to see B and Irene Cox. I just can hardly stand not to see them. And here you are separated from them by miles and, and hours. But one of the choicest privileges of a pastor and his wife is those strong bonds of love that develop. There's a love between a pastor and his wife and the people in the congregation that's unique. Just last day, one day last week, my husband was called upon to uh, do a funeral for a, a, a man who had come to know the Lord under his ministry about 15 years ago. And as we stood at the grave, 
with that coffin there ready to be placed in the ground. We stood just with our arms around those dear people whom we hadn't seen for some time, and we all cried together, and we all thought back of the times when we had eaten ice cream together and fried steaks together and, and had talked about the things of the Lord. And there we were, still dear, dear friends, and that close bond of love can never be broken, can never be severed, and that's one of the choice privileges. And then... Fourthly, and then I'm going to get on to the problems. You're thinking, I'm going to spend the whole time on the goodies. <laughs> and the problems are what are hurting. A fourth special privilege of the pastor's wife, the pastor and his wife, is the satisfaction, the satisfaction of shepherding and leading a flock of sheep. That's what it is. That's what it's like. It's like pastoring and shepherding a flock of sheep, and there's such a satisfaction in that. When you think about a shepherd, and a shepherd getting satisfaction by watching his sheep grow, and then the satisfaction he gets when the sheep are big enough to be sheared, and out comes a, a crop of very special wool that's going to be used for some very beautiful clothing or whatever. And the shepherd takes great pride in that wool that comes off of his sheep, the sheep that he's fed and the sheep that he's led and the sheep that he's watched over so they don't fall over a cliff and all of that. And the same thing is true in the life of a pastor and his wife. As you build into the lives of people, you teach them, you lead them, you feed them, and then you have the joy of watching them grow and watching them mature in their Christian lives, and you have a deep and lasting sense of reward and thanksgiving for what you've been able to do in their lives. Well, those are just four. There are more, but that's all the time I'm going to take today. The four privileges and blessings of being a pastor's wife. And now the problems. Really, when you think of a workshop, you think of getting something that you can take home that's going to be of help. And I do hope that you'll take the positive things home. And I hope that when you get discouraged, you'll take these out, perhaps, and read them over again and realize that you are a very privileged person. I don't know about some of you, but when I was growing up as a little girl, first I wanted to be a nurse. Oh, I wanted to be a nurse so badly when I was about seven or eight. And then I fainted one morning when my girlfriend had a Band-Aid taken off of a cut. And I thought, oh boy, <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm cut out to be a nurse. And I decided, no, that wasn't it. So then I thought, oh, I want to be a secretary. And I really did want to be a secretary, and I pursued that. And as it turns out, I got to be a secretary. But I also had another secret desire, and that was that I actually wanted to marry a preacher. I really did. We would have speakers come to our church you know, conference speakers and all of that. I remember sitting there as a little girl and just drooling over those guys, and I think, oh, imagine being married to somebody like that. And in time, the Lord let me do that, and he let me marry one of those preachers that I really wanted to marry. And I can truthfully say to this day, after many years in the, in the pastorate and in other Christian ministries, I wouldn't go back and trade my role for anything in the world. But that doesn't mean that we haven't had problems. And that doesn't mean that there have been times when we've been discouraged and we've been downcast and we've been worn out to the point where you think, I can't go another step. 
and all of this. It's all there. But let's get into the problems. As I say, when you come to a workshop, you want to get some answers. And so I'm going to just talk about the problems just right out. And some of you who are not pastor's wives may think, oh boy, I didn't know those were problems. But they are. And I know that you, as women in congregations, will be better women for that and for hearing these things that, that pastor's wives experience. We know that the problems are very real. And I, I just get very agitated when somebody says, oh, don't look at the problems. They're not really there. Just overlook them and you'll be just fine. That doesn't work. They're very real problems. There, and there are no simplistic answers. Uh, there's no set of, pants, of pat answers that uh, fit every situation. I wish I did have uh, a sheet that I could give to every one of you to take home and that uh, it just had the magic formula for dissolving all the problems in your church and all the things that you ever face. I wish I had that, but I don't. There are no pat answers that will fit every, every situation. Some churches are easy to serve, and I can't help but think that maybe we were given those, those churches for some reason or another. And when I hear of some of the other stories, I think, boy, I, I think we were given some of the easy churches. There are some churches that aren't quite so easy, and then there are some churches that are, are you here, <laughs> next to impossible. There are some churches where pastors and their wives have gone in and they've been next to impossible. And it's been next to impossible for the pastor and his wife to bear up under some of the things that they've been asked to bear up under. And I don't know about your situations, but I know that I have counseled with many little uh, graduates from our seminary who call us in tears and counsel with us. And as we go around the country, the first thing that happens to me when I go to a conference, here comes a little pastor's wife, and she sidles up to me, and she says, Help! I'm a pastor's wife, and I need you. Um, some churches have driven off so many pastors that you wonder how they have the nerve to call another one. You really do. I know of a case right now. I'm not going to give any locations or anything, but we're very close to a situ situation right now where I wonder how the church is going to be nervy enough to ask another man and his wife to come in there. The way the people carry on, the way the people treat the pastor and his wife, it's just unbelievable. But it's true. And it's just unbelievable. This uh, little quote I found again in the Arkansas Baptist News, I get a kick out of these things. Uh, this little Arkansas man said, uh, this throws light on why it takes some churches so long to get new pastors after their pulpits become vacant. The churches, and this was his broken uh, English, the churches is scared they will get another preacher like the one they just had. And every prospective pastor is, is afeard he will wind up with another church like the one he's trying to get loose from. <laughs> and that is sad but true. Another quote I saw, a dear woman was weeping copiously as she parted with her pastor. She was just sobbing like her heart would break. Now, now, said the pastor, don't cry. The bishop is sending you a good pastor, a much better one. But, she wailed, that's what they told us the last time. <laughs> that's also from the 
Arkansas Baptist News. But what are some of the pressing problems? And what are the most, some of the most common problems? And some suggested solutions. I'm not standing up here telling you that I have all the answers for you. But I have lived a long while, many years more than many of you. And uh, I have been through a lot of these things, and I do feel that perhaps some of the things I have learned and some of the things that, um, that the Lord has taught me might be of help to you. I think one of the biggest pressures and one of the biggest problems we face is the problem of time. Time. And I'm going to amplify on that. Um, most of the time, our schedules are like a nightmare. They really are. Now, if you're in a pastorate where that's not true, I'm unable to relate to that because that's been one of our uh, constant problems in all of our ministry, the problem of time. Uh, one day blurs into another. And very often we put in 70-hour weeks. Many weeks are 70-plus hours a week if we're doing all we're supposed to do. And there are a lot of things that come out of this, and I want to deal with these one at a time. First, one of the problems is that we do have very little time or no time to spend with our husbands and with our children. And what I mean by this is time to spend alone with them. Now, like I was saying how... Uh, this occupation makes it possible for you to be with your husband a lot more than in other occupations. But there isn't that much time to be with just him by yourself, all alone. And that's true. That's a problem. There is very little time to be just with your husband. You're always sharing your husband in one sense. And your children are always in a nursery or with a sitter or you're dragging them along with you. We had our children when... It was still the custom to drag them along with you to everything. And our kids spent hours and hours with us at people's houses and at the church maybe till 11 o'clock on Sunday night and all of that. And we dragged them around. And you know what? They turned out to be very healthy, normal boys. <laughs> Their personalities aren't warped. And they're just really fine, young, handsome men today. But this is a problem. And what do you do um, with this, this problem of not having enough time together as a family and with your husbands alone. Uh, one solution that I want to share with you that we used, and I think it's very helpful, it sounds so simple that I hesitate to say it, but it works, and that is to put appointments with your family on the calendar, like you do your church appointments. I hope you all keep a calendar. I can't imagine a pastor's wife without a calendar, a written calendar on her desk, so she doesn't forget things. But... We got, so we had to do this, and we would write out on our calendar appointments with each other and with our kids. And we uh, got so that we really felt privileged if we had one night a week for family night. But that's what we did. We blocked out one night a week for family night, and on our calendar you would see written family night, Thursday night. And if someone would call and say, uh, can you come over for dinner? Or can you do this or can you do that Thursday night? We'll say, no, we're busy. And we did not feel one bit guilty. We felt very honest and open about it. We are busy because we are being faithful to God and to our children in spending at least one night a week with them. And then for my husband, we would sometimes put lunch together. And that would go on the appointment book. That's the only way you can do that. That was one of the best things we ever found. 
in our church bulletin, we put a notice that Thursday night was the Toussaint family night. And our people appreciated that. They said, boy, we appreciate that. Now we know not to call you on Thursday night. And there were times when they would have to. And we were the first to say, in any emergency, call us and we'll switch from Thursday to Tuesday or whatever. And there were some weeks when we had to do that and then we never did get the Tuesday. But uh, if you ever want time with your family and with your uh, children, you must set appointments. Then another thing that I say, and I have to tell you that when I tell you to do this, we have not done it. All these years, we're still working on it. <laughs> we're still trying. But you do need to take a day off a week. Take a day off a week if you have to fight for it. And we have not fought for it, and so we have not had a day off a week. And to this day, my husband and I, for the most part, work seven days a week. And the way I look, <laughs> you know, the wrinkles and all, that's what happens. So you young girls, <laughs> uh, be a little more careful and be, be uh, a little wiser than we've been in this. And do fight for that one day off a week. We're still struggling with it, and we keep saying, this spring we're going to start taking a day off a week. And we're working at it. We're working on some schemes to make us do that. But uh, we have never done it, and I really would underscore this two or three times in red to take a day off a week because God said he made the, the week with seven days, six for working and one for pleasure, one for rest. We don't do that. Uh, Sunday is our busiest day, and that's supposed to be the day of rest. So let me urge you to do what we have not done, and that is to take a day a week off. And don't feel guilty. Just wake up in the morning and bring your husband breakfast in bed or let him bring you breakfast in bed. Just lie there and read all day. This is what I've dreamed of doing, and so I'm telling you to do it. Um, and someday I'm going to do this, maybe. But um, keep working at that and do that. It's very, very important. Uh, take a day off with your husband and your children when they're small. Take them with you and just spend the day with those children. You'll be away from the house, away from the phone. You can't take a day off at home. I know you've all found that out. Don't try to take your day off at home unless you're unusual. Try to get away from that phone. Now, the second problem with scheduling is you're unable to get your work done. Have you ever had that problem? Some of you are smiling. <laughs> you're unable to get your work done. There just isn't enough time in the day for you to do all the things that you do at the church, for the church, with the church, with the people of the church, and then to have any time left for your housework, for your children, for your duties at home, which are very, very important that you keep up. And so, again, there needs to be a solution to this. And the thing that I have uh, come up with is do not overload yourself with church responsibilities. Do not overload yourself with church responsibilities. This is where we get into trouble. Recognize your own limits. Recognize your own limits, physically and emotionally. Realize that each one of us has built-in limits. Some of us have weak constitutions. Some of us have strong constitutions. Some of us can just go, go, go like a house of fire. 
and some of us can't. Some of us actually do have physical and emotional limitations, and we need to be wise enough to find out what our maximum load limit is. How many hours a day can we spend on church things? How many hours a day can we spend out of our houses and out of our homes at the church or with the church women? How much time can we spend? And we need to actually sit down and figure that out, calculate that. And I'm the type, I write out a schedule for myself. Right now I need to do another one, but I usually have a schedule posted on the back of one of my cupboards. What I do every day of the week, which days I vacuum and scrub, and which days I study, and which days I shampoo my hair, and all of this. I'm that detailed that I write all of this out on a schedule. So I know just how much time I can block out for certain things. Some of you say, if I lived with that, I'd die uh, to live with that kind of a regimented thing. And maybe you would, so don't do that. But somehow figure out how you can know how much time you can spend at the church and doing church things. And then don't go beyond that. Say no, say no, say no. One of the things that's plagued uh, pastor's wives down through the centuries is that we've been afraid to say no because of criticism. And I'm going to get to criticism later. We're afraid to say no. We might know what we feel we can do between us and the Lord and then we, we say no and then somebody criticizes us and then we feel bad. And I'm going to tell you in a little while how to deal with criticisms. But we need to each just be honest with ourselves, sit and evaluate our own physical limitations and our weaknesses and our strengths and then stick to that and do only what we feel we can do. Don't feel that you have to teach a Sunday school class, uh, sing in the choir, um, be a a chairman of the ladies' aid, um, just you know, down the list, be in charge of the uh, uh, workday at the church, all of that. There's no way one woman can do all of that. And don't feel obligated to do all of that. But decide what you like to do, what you're gifted to do. And we'll talk a little more about this later, too. But um, this is primarily in the area of time, blocking out the time that you need and then be sure to stick to that. Now, another problem under this and un being unable to get your work done, what about interruptions? How do you handle interruptions? This is the problem, isn't it? You might get your schedule all set up and know exactly what you want to do today and what you plan to do today, and then, uh-oh, <laughs> the phone starts ringing and the doorbell starts ringing. You have people on the phone, you have people at the door. And you need to deal with that. You need to deal with those people. You can't ignore them. You can't be rude to them. You need to be courteous. But the one thing that I have learned is that it doesn't hurt to be open and honest with the people on the phone and at the door. Don't be afraid to be open and honest with them about what you're in the middle of and what you have to do the next hour. For example, there's a, a death in the church, and there's a funeral at 11 o'clock, and somebody doesn't realize that. You might have a huge church, and somebody might not realize that your husband is preaching at a funeral at 11 o'clock. So they come to your door at 10, and they want to have coffee and a donut with you, and they want to they talk with you and share a problem. 
Or do you sit there and share that problem with them and have coffee with them and just completely ignore the fact that your husband is going to expect you to be at the church at 11 o'clock so that you can be there uh, for the funeral? No. How do you, what do you do? You say, uh, Joan, I really hate to tell you this, but this is just not going to be a good time for us to get, to get together. We're going to need to set another time because I've got a funeral at 11 o'clock. And Joan doesn't expect you to miss the funeral or to even be late to the funeral. But we need to be open and honest at times like this and, and very gently and kindly say, I'm sorry, but this is just not going to be a good time for us to talk. And just postpone that and make another appointment with her. Uh, some churches are much harder to deal with. Uh, these, I mean, there are a lot of situations that are much harder to deal with than others. Some people just would be offended if you do that. But you, you have to choose the lesser of the two evils. Offending them at that moment or being late to the funeral, which would be a greater offense. So this is what I'm talking about. Dealing with interruptions and being open and honest with the people who happen to be calling you or coming to the door. When someone calls you on the phone and you're in the middle of something that you have to finish, unless that person is telling you that they just had a tragedy in their family, if it's just small talk or, or just even something light, you don't have to be afraid to say, could I call you right back? Or would you mind calling me in about a half an hour? There's no offense there. If we just will deal openly and honestly. Sometimes I think many of the problems in this area have come because we've been afraid to speak up. But no one's going to be offended if we say this in the right way and let them know they're going to, uh, they're going to appreciate it, that we're honest and open with them. And then we, we, uh, we need to be discreet and tactful and not run them off uh, in an unkind way at all, but just uh, to be careful in that area, to be open and honest with our time schedules. It's the only way you can avoid having people there all the time or having the phone ringing constantly. I have people in almost every situation where we are, even now, when we're uh, pastoring part-time and uh, being at the seminary, I have some people who call me, and I know when they call, it's going to be an hour. I know that. When I hear the name, I know it's going to be an hour. But I've learned that even with my friends that I talk an hour with, and I love to do that when I can, and for the most part, I don't tell them that I can't talk an hour right now, but there have been times when I've said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I am going to have to call you back, or I am going to just have to talk a minute now because of and I'll let them know why. And they don't, they don't uh, take offense at that. Let's be open and honest in regard to our time frame. Now, an, another problem, this is a whole different area, is the lack of friends and loneliness. The lack of friends and loneliness. One of the things I'm asked, I think more than any one thing, is as a pastor's wife, can I have a close friend in the congregation? I crave close friends. I long for close, intimate friendships. Can't I have one in my congregation? Can't I? And this is what I usually say. And you may disagree with me on this, those of you who've been pastor's wives for many, many years. But this is the way I feel about it, and this is what has worked well for me. I'm just throwing it out to you as a possible solution. I actually feel that it's wiser to cultivate large 
a large circle of friends in the congregation. And by that I mean they can really be friendships. They don't have to just be casual speaking acquaintances, like speaking to them at church on Sunday and all this. But I think we, we need to cultivate large circles of friends in the congregation, not a select few. I do think it's unwise for a pastor and his wife to have one or two couples that they're very intimate and close with, or even for the pastor's wife to have one or two of the women of the church that she confides in more than other women. Now, I really feel that's unwise, and I've seen many, many problems arise from that. So I, I feel that it's wiser to reach out into your congregation and be with lots of people all the time, be with lots of people. Now, you say, how can I do that? Well, um, you can invite people in, like you can invite uh, the elders and their wives in, or the deacons and their wives, as long as you invite people in in groups there's no offense. Like if you have three board members in your church, nobody's going to criticize you if you have those three board members and their wives in for dinner. But if you just have one, what are the other two going to say? They're going to say, well, when are they going to have us? And why are they having Jack and Sue in and they're not having us in? And oh, I've seen a lot of problems with that. We need to be very careful. But now, um, you say, well, I, I'm just not satisfied with that. I'm just not satisfied with just being friends with people in the congregation like that and, and having them in and not being able to share all of my personal things with them. Well, there are two, two answers to this, and I think it depends on you as a person. For some pastors' wives, the only confidant they need, the only person they really need uh, to pour out their problems and their troubles on is their husband. And I happen to be that kind of a woman. I... I have that kind of a relationship with my husband. When I really want to talk about something deep, when I really want to pour out my heart, that's where I go, to my husband. And I have not ever felt it necessary to go outside of that uh, confidence with him to share my burdens or my needs. But many women are not that way. Many women need another woman. They need another woman to confide in. And, and much as they love their husbands, and, and as close as they are, they're just made differently. And they really do need another woman to confide in. So this is the counsel I give, and this is what I think would, would save you a lot of trouble if you're that kind of a woman. Choose a friend or a friend outside the church. Outside the church. Now, like if you're in a small, small community where there wouldn't be anybody else except the people that go to your church, well, then you're in trouble. But there usually is someone else. Or you can reach into the next community, not too far away, but, but uh, far enough away that, that it would work for you to, uh, you know, to not cause a problem in your church, and just reach out. Maybe another pastor's wife in the, the little town next door. You could uh, cultivate a deep friendship with her. Now, even in this, I want to warn you, and I, wanna be, I want you to be careful. This doesn't mean that you can get with another pastor's wife and be close, close confidence and friends, and then share all the trouble in the church with another pastor's wife. That's not what I'm talking about. You never spread those confidences. You never take the problems of your congregation and spread them anywhere. That's not what I mean by friendship. 
I'm talking about just the need of talking about everything else except the problems in the church. And you know what I'm saying. Your friends, where you share your lives and you enjoy each other just as friends. But be very, very careful about this whole matter of sharing confidences. Now, I know a true friend is the kind of a person whom you should be able to pour out anything to. That's what makes a good friend. But it really is a dangerous thing to share any of your church problems with a friend, no matter how close she is. But I'm just, uh, I'm hurrying over this because I've got so many other areas. But if you want to talk about this a little bit afterwards, I'd be more than happy to, to discuss this area with you. I think this is one of the most difficult problems many women face, is not having enough close friends and being able to spend time with them. Another problem, money. <laughs> you say, oh, no, you can just skip right over that. <laughs> we never have a problem with money. But there's never enough, is there? One of the wealthiest men in the world, I think it was one of the Rockefellers, said, how much money is enough? And here's this millionaire, and he says, just a little more than what I've got. And isn't that true? No matter how much your church pays you, you think we need a little more. We could use a little more, always. And that's, that's always going to be true. Well, these are just four suggestions I want to make about the whole area of money. And it has been also a very deep, deep problem in many, many uh, homes, pastors' homes. I say this, I may not even need to say this to you, but I think it needs to be said. We need to be frugal with what we've got. We need to be frugal with what we got, with what we get and what we have. Um, I don't even think, well, I don't think even wealthy people waste a whole lot. Many wealthy people do, but many wealthy people are wealthy because they've been frugal. And this is something that we really need to learn, the lesson of frugality. We need to look for bargains. I never, or I shouldn't say never, that's a, a word you're never supposed to use, <laughs> but I rarely ever buy anything that isn't marked down. I go to my stores and I keep my eye on this, on the little price tags on them, and I watch. I watch for them, for them to mark them down the first time, and then I know they're going to mark them down again, and so I wait until they mark them down for the final time, and then I buy things. My kids, when, when they were growing up, got so sick of mother looking for sale things that they said, boy, the first time we get any money, we're going to buy something that isn't on sale. <laughs> and I remember they both did that. Now they're both back to buying things on sale because they know. But then uh, waste. Uh, throwing out leftovers. I'm appalled when I see people say, oh, my husband wouldn't eat that a second time. Uh, he doesn't like leftovers. I hear, actually, I hear little wives say that. My husband won't eat leftovers, but we need to be frugal in all these areas. Save the juice off of peaches. It makes a nice glass of juice for breakfast the next morning. You don't pour that delicious juice down the drain when you're serving peaches. You save that juice. And you save those leftovers. Oh, you cook wisely and you don't cook too much. Uh, and then wise planning. Uh, planning for spending your money and buying things at the right time. Like you don't eat fresh strawberries in January because they're much more expensive then unless you're pregnant and you're craving them and you've just got to have them. <laughs> but ordinarily you eat strawberries in the summer. You don't buy them on the fruit counter in the winter 
when they're a dollar fifty a pint. And this is what I'm talking about being frugal. And then this I learned, and I think you all need to learn it if you don't know it already. Be willing to accept and enjoy hand-me-downs. I was never too proud to have my kids dressed in some clothes that some of the wealthy people in our churches had just taken off their kids. In fact, my kids wore some Neiman Marcus things. You know Neiman Marcus, <laughs> the ritziest store in Dallas? I would never buy anything at Neiman's unless it was marked down half price. But uh, my kids got to wear little suit coats that said Neiman Marcus inside. And I'm probably, uh, probably at one time or another we were criticized by somebody who didn't know that I didn't buy them. But anyway, uh, my kids got to wear things with Neiman Marcus labels because I wasn't too proud to say, sure, my kids can wear those clothes. And I have a very beautiful coat today um, that says Neiman Marcus inside, and I didn't buy that at Neiman Marcus. A friend of mine didn't like it. And she gave me this practically new coat. And I love it, and I wear it a lot. But we need to be careful about being too proud to take hand-me-downs and things that are given to us. And then second, never expect to be rich. I think that would help us more if we would just get that philosophy. Never expect to be rich. If your husband wanted to be a wealthy man, a rich man, he would have gone into a different profession. He really would have. And I'm really uh, encouraged and pleased by the way churches are paying pastors more today. I'm encouraged by that, but there are still many pastors who get by on just a shoestring. But if you have the framework, we're never going to be rich. I'm not worried about it. I'm never going to be rich. I don't have to worry about all that responsibility. All I have to worry about is just getting along and, and having my food and my clothes for my kids and just enough to get along. Don't ever expect to be rich, and that will help you a lot in what you don't have. Attitude is a big part of this whole thing. Then... Do be open, and I think your husband should be open with the board and with the congregation when there are serious, legitimate needs that aren't being met. If you have unnecessary, I mean unexpected, not unnecessary, unexpected medical expense that comes, don't be afraid to share that with the church. They'll probably know it anyway if you're close to your congregation. But don't be afraid to share an unexpected need that has come up. And I know that you're Church, if you are in love with them and they are in love with you, they're going to be the first ones to help you with unexpected uh, financial needs. And then this is another attitude, but I think this is just as important. Avoid the attitude of expecting everything to be given to you. I talked with a little wife about a year ago, and she said, I just can't understand this. She said, some of my friends from seminary have gone into churches and their people just give them everything. They give them trips. They, they pay their way to conferences. They do everything for them, and our people don't do that. She said, they never even offer to pay for our trips to conferences and things like that. Why do you think that is? And I said, I don't know why that is, but I sure wouldn't let them know that you feel that. If your church begins to feel that you're expecting handouts, you're expecting that every time you go to a restaurant, they're going to pick up the tab. Uh, they're going to catch on to that attitude. And you need to uh, avoid the attitude of expecting your people to pay everything for you and to constantly give you things. Now, on the other hand, I've never seen anything the likes of the way we've been spoiled and blessed in our churches. People have not been able to give us enough, and we get embarrassed. One of my friends, a little a Chinese friend of mine, 
Every time she would come to the door and every time I would go to her house, she would give me something of value. And I just thought, Robin, you've got to quit this. <laughs> this is too much. And that's the way most people are. But there are times when people aren't that way and we're not to, to let them ever think that we expect that they will pay for everything for us and give us everything. Some do and some don't. And don't make it a problem. If they don't, just uh, ignore it. Okay, uh, the next big problem. We don't have to be right out at 11.30, do we? They left. We'll hurry. I won't keep you more than about uh, 10 more minutes. Is that okay? Okay. Criticisms. Criticisms. Always, always, always criticisms. And if you've never been criticized, you better prepare yourself. <laughs> because you're going to get it. Sometime you're going to get it. And it's going to come maybe from a very unexpected source. Someone whom you thought just, oh, you thought they just thought you were the greatest pastor's wife that ever lived, and then they criticize you, and your whole world collapses around you because you weren't expecting it. So expect it. Expect criticism. And don't be surprised by it. That's one of the first things I would say. And I'm not, um, I hope I'm not being unkind to people, but let's face it, people are critical. If we look at ourselves, don't you find that you have a little critical spirit in there somewhere? All people have that. Our first tendency is to criticize, and then we evaluate. <laughs> first we criticize, then we really look at a situation. But we're just born that way. But we, learn, we need to expect criticism. Then we need to learn to evaluate criticisms. And this is what has been so helpful to, to me. Evaluate criticisms. First, be honest in listening to see if the criticism is valid. Be honest with yourself in listening to see if criticism is valid. Criticism can be a constructive learning situation. I am very grateful, for the most part, for the criticisms I've received in the ministry. Now, they've been at a minimum, and I, I again just thank the Lord for that. I have not been severely criticized ever. I've been criticized, but not in, in an overabundant amount. But I, I have learned much from these criticisms, and we need to realize that, that criticism can be a constructive learning situation. So we need to evaluate those criticisms, and we need to, uh, to be honest in listening to them and to see if there's any validity to them. Now, what do we do when we evaluate them? This might sound a little bit... Uh, crass, but I'm going to say it anyway, blow off and ignore completely those that you know have no validity. Just get to where you can just blow off those criticisms that have no validity. If you've actually looked at yourself, you've analyzed your situation, and you know that there's not truth to that, then blow it off and ignore it. And I might even add, consider the source and just think that that person is just out to get you and to ignore it. Just learn to turn your head 
and to ignore it. Um, and then the opposite side of that, when there is valid criticism, be grateful. Be very grateful for helpful criticisms that come from your people. For the people who are criticizing you because they want you, they want you to, to improve in this area or they know that you need help in this area, be grateful for that and accept it from them as from a heart of love and concern for you. Now, I want to just look quickly at the types of criticism. The types of criticism toward you, for example, you get criticism about things you say, you get criticized for the use of your time, you get criticized for the way you dress, you get criticized for the way you keep your house, you get criticized because of your talents, your lack of talents in most cases. And actually, in all these areas, uh, you do need to be careful. This last one, being criticized for your talents or your lack of talents. Um, it isn't necessary for every pastor's wife, as I said in the beginning, to be a, a concert pianist or a gifted soloist or a gourmet cook or um, you know a flawless organizer, all of that. It is not necessary for every one of us to have all of these skills. And not one of us has all of these. And if you can't play the piano, if you can't sing, if you can't teach a ladies' Bible class, don't worry about that. And don't force yourself into that kind of a mold. Don't feel pressure in this area. Discover your gifts, discover what you can do, what you're comfortable in doing, and then do that and not worry about the rest. Don't think that you have to run out and take piano lessons just because somebody said, oh, you don't play? <laughs> no, I don't play. <laughs> I just don't play. You don't have to run out and take piano. Just very sweetly say, no, I'm sorry, that's just not one of my gifts. But then cultivate the gifts you do have and use them. And let me say this, sometimes, and you may be surprised at this, sometimes I think a pastor's wife is better off when her gifts are some of the more uh, quiet ones and the less showy. I think many times a pastor's wife is better off if she can't play the piano. Now, not always. It's a blessing if she can. Maybe sometimes she's better off if she can't speak at a, a large group meeting or teach a Bible class. But if she has the gifts of helps and mercy and hospitality, and the gift of faith so that she can pray for her people and her husband and claim great victories and, and a blessing for their ministries. Many times I think that kind of a pastor's wife is better off than the one who might have the gifts that everybody sees, the piano playing and the soloists and all of that. Not always, but that, that can be very true. So if you don't have some of these showy gifts or some of these gifts that are uh, evidenced in public, don't wish for them. Don't envy the ones who have them. Just cultivate the gifts you have and be honest with, your, with yourself. And then I want to just say this. We need to be careful in all of these other areas where we get criticism. We are to dress modestly. And I don't need to say that to a group like this, I guess. But there are some little pastor's wives who are coming across the scene today who don't know that. And... God forbid that any little pastor's wife would ever stand in front of her congregation with her blouse down to here. 
I mean, surely we should know that from the scriptures, and we are to dress modestly. And I think that the norm for our dress is about uh, the middle between high fashion and old fashion, or being out of style. I think it's a disgrace uh, to the Lord for us to look tacky and for us not to be in style, but I also think that it's a little too much for us to think that the minute something comes out, we have to have it. We throw away everything we had last season and have to get all new clothes. I don't think that's necessary either. We need to keep the middle of the road in it. And then the whole area of being criticized in what you say, I think that is one of the areas that we need to watch the most. If I were to give you one big thing this morning, watch your tongue. Watch your tongue. And I think that pastor's wives have gotten into more trouble by their tongues than any other area. And we need to be so very careful. And uh, one thing that I really would say, if you want to write down just one sentence, and then just think about this. Hold back on your opinions and advice. Hold back on your opinions and advice. Uh, people come to you for advice, and when they ask for it, you can give it. But when they don't ask for it, be very careful, and don't start off with giving advice to people. And you, in a group of women, should be the last one to give your opinion. And if you can learn that, you're going to save yourself a lot of trouble. It's not that you're not to have an opinion. You should be very uh, careful to, to form your opinions and to know what you believe and to be current on issues like abortion and uh, lesbianism, women's rights, and the, all of this stuff. You should be in the know on all of that so you can talk intelligently. But when you get with a group of your church women, don't you be the one to take the floor. Just because you've read a lot and you know a lot because of your husband's exposure and all that, don't um, be the first one to give an opinion. In fact, I would say, to be safe, wait till last. And in fact, when you wait till last, it's much uh, more effective many times. Here, everybody else has said everything they think, and then you come up with these pearls of wisdom <laughs> at the very end. And that's so true that it can be uh, just that way. And I would say... If I could give you another word besides keep your mouth shut, it's keep your ears open. And that word is listen, listen, listen. And if you do more listening than talking as a pastor's wife, you're going to save yourself a barrel of problems. Um, oh, there's so many things. I should have made this into two. But I'm going to... Five more minutes? Okay. Now, the criticisms... Criticisms towards your husband. Um, you're going to get all kinds of criticisms about him. You know, like his mannerisms. Sometimes some little lady in the church is going to come up to you and she's going to say, Do you know, I just have noticed what your husband does all the time. He always pulls on his ear when he's preaching. And at first you're going to say, Well, doesn't he have a right to pull on his ear while he's preaching if he wants to? And that's not the way we are to accept that type of criticism. But we are to be very tactful and careful when somebody comes and says that they don't like something that our husbands are doing. They might not like the way he uses his time. 
They might say he visits too little, he studies too much, uh, and so on. But I think what we could do in this area, too, is to be, to be kind and considerate when these criticisms come and to evaluate them. But then I think that one thing we can do as wives is be a critique on our husbands. If you are a critique on your husband, he's going to avoid a lot of these criticisms from the people. And in fact, I use this thing about the ear because that's exactly one of the little things that my husband started doing when he was first preaching. He used to just pull on this ear till I thought he was going to pull it off. And you know that I didn't wait till a lady in the congregation came up to me and told me that my husband was pulling on his ear. Very gently and kindly, I said, Honey, uh, did you know, and this wasn't on Sunday noon after he just preached. This was on Wednesday after he had you know, time to get over Sunday. But I said, honey, do you know something? It's almost gotten funny, but you're beginning to pull on your ear when you preach. And he said, am I really? And he wasn't even aware of it. And I think that we as wives can be critiquing our husbands and, and watching for these little things that are going to be annoying to our people. And then we can share it with our husbands and avoid having to get these criticisms. Like if your husband's sermons are not well organized, now be careful here. You as a wife are not to say, I could preach that one better than you. Never. But we can say, honey, did you realize that that one, that one point Sunday didn't come across very clearly? And if you have the right kind of a relationship with your husband, you can talk about these things, and you're going to avoid a lot of criticisms that he might get and that you might get if you just have this freedom to interact and to share these criticisms with each other. And then towards your children, oh my. <laughs> Uh, everybody else knows better how to raise your kids than you do. You know that. There are a thousand different ideas and words of advice. But all I could say here is to just take all of this graciously and sort it all out. Don't dismiss it. Don't be defensive. Sort it all out and listen. And it may be that there are some things that you're not seeing in your kids. We all like to think we're the perfect parent, but we're not. And many times people can see things that we're not doing or that we're overdoing. And what I would say here is to be honest with the criticism and be teachable. We need to be teachable and honest. And sometimes our kids might need something that we're not seeing and then I might add, be teachable, but not threatened. Be teachable, but not threatened. When a, a friend in your congregation comes to you and shares something about your child, don't be threatened. She's not trying to be ugly with you ordinarily. Sometimes she might be. But even if she is, just pretend she's not. And listen. And, and maybe you'll learn some things. I've learned many things from women in my congregations about raising children. And I'm thankful for that counsel that I got. There were lots of things I didn't know when we got our children. And I've, I've learned a lot down through the years just from women whom I've associated with. And I've listened. And I've tried to remain teachable. Don't think that I know how to raise those kids better than she does and have that kind of an attitude toward anyone who would come to you. And then there are problems that will not go away there are problems that are unsolvable. 
And I want to just say a couple things about this. There are people, and I hope those of you who are not pastor's wives will forgive me when I say this, but there are people who are impossible to get along with. And if you've not run across any of them, you're going to. There are some people, no matter how you try, you cannot please them, you cannot satisfy them, and they are impossible to get along with. And so what do you do? You show love and concern in spite of it all. You ignore their unkind and thoughtless remarks. And you read 1 Peter 2.20, <laughs> which says, If you're buffeted for your faults and take it graciously, what praise have you? But if you're buffeted for doing right, then, and you take it patiently, then you have reward from God. And so when these situations arise, um, ignore the kind and thoughtless remarks and pray for grace to endure these difficult situations and pray for ultimate relief. And then one other uh, aspect of this, what about mistakes you've made as a pastor's wife that you cannot go back and correct? And you look back and you think, why did I act like that? Why did I say that? Why didn't I listen? Why did I open my mouth? And you did it, it's done, and you cannot ever undo it. What do you do about those things that are hanging over you? Well, what do you do? You do what God says about all sin. And you read Psalm 103, 10 through 14, that says that as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our transgressions from us. And he remembers our frame. He knows that we're dust. And so we confess those things to God as sin, and then we go on our way. And we leave them behind us, as we're told in Philippians 3.13. Philippians 3.13. I'm going to close with reading one illustration, and then you may go to lunch. Two pastor's wives sat mending the trousers of their husbands. One said dejectedly, My husband is so discouraged. His people are unfaithful in attending church, and they are behind in his salary. He is so blue that he does not like to visit them anymore. So he sits around the house much of the time. Said the other wife, My husband is getting along fine. He spends much of his time visiting and helping people. The attendance at the church is good, and best of all, souls are being saved, and people are growing in grace and Christ-likeness. The wife of the prospering pastor was mending the knees of her husband's trousers. The wife of the dejected pastor was mending the seat of her husband's trousers. And this could apply to us as pastor's wives as well. How much of our time is spent praying for our pastor husbands? Many of our problems would be solved or at least minimized if we spent more time in prayer wrestling with the problems and less time trying to figure out human solutions. And oh, I have found that so true in the ministry. When I take a problem that's just overwhelming me to the Lord and I get down beside my bed, my place of prayer, and the, the tears are dripping down on, on the towel that I use because there are many times tears. When I get up from my knees, the problem looks much less foreboding. And it's so very true. I'm not being overly simplistic. Prayer solves many of the problems. 
And in prayer, we get insight into how to deal with these things. And the Lord will lead us if we will pray more and worry less. And then also, coupled with the prayer, we need to saturate ourselves with Scripture. And I think a pastor's wife can solve many of her problems by just immersing herself in the Scriptures. And the Lord will begin to, to make her more and more like Christ, and more and more of her problems will be resolved. Well, I must quit. <laughs>